Hello, this is Faithful Discourse with Chris Henry, a series of conversations at the intersection of religious faith and public life. I'm your host, Chris Henry, and I'm so grateful to be joined today by a dear friend and inspiring leader in our community, Amr Patel. Amr served for six years as executive director for Teach for America Indianapolis, an educational nonprofit that recruits, supports, and develops leaders that drive change in our education system, starting in the classroom. His current work involves leading a collaborative effort to create a thriving community in the Washington Township section of Indianapolis. Amr, welcome to Faithful Discourse. Such a privilege to be with you, Chris. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. When we first met a couple of years ago, you were leading a deeply impactful nonprofit, Teach for America Indianapolis. And in the time since, you've made a shift to lead a broader effort toward becoming a good community. I wonder if you'd tell me a little bit about how your interest in this work was shaped and developed. Well, um, again, great to be with you, Chris. Thank you. And um, I, know you, I know you know how I feel about you. Um, nothing but love and, and admiration and respect. So again, great, grateful to be here. And uh, thanks for the question. I, I suppose there's probably a number of reasons, uh, sort of my why uh, for, for this current sort of season of, of work and vocation. And I think the first is all that I learned over the past better part of a generation uh, working in in education, in Chicago as a teacher and uh, as a nonprofit leader, and then here back home in Indiana, uh, running Teach for America, the organization that brought me into the the field of education um, after college. And the work was just nothing short of profound, life-altering, transformative. Uh, I think um, in many ways, it's it's that experience that, that have made me contribute to who I am, what I value, clarified my values. Mm. It's where I met my students in Chicago, and they changed my life forevermore. Yeah. Um, yes. I'm a big believer in, in education as, as uh, among the civil rights issues, equitable access to an excellent education, and that this generation uh, has a responsibility uh, to enable uh, all mm-hmm. uh, to have access to an excellent education as a human right. I also had uh, the experience of seeing so many of my former students uh, that did everything that was asked of them. Um, and did well in school, showed up every day, got the A's on the tests and on the state tests, and um, got into college, found financing for college, went to college, persisted in college, and graduated, as hard as that is, and mm-hmm. uh, how unfair a few uh, there were that, that, that traveled that journey. Um, something that really struck me and kept me up at night, frankly, still does, uh, was that even those that traveled that journey, uh, we're talking... 20, 30% of kids in Chicago mm. nowadays, if you look at their longitudinal outcomes, um, the, the types of things that kids themselves, uh, I think maybe you and I, Chris, would say ourselves, um, are things that we would want for our children, for ourselves, for our mm. students. Meaningful income, the building of wealth over time, a meaningful vocation, so on and so forth, long life, having a high life expectancy. If we look at those types of outcomes, uh, longitudinally, we find in, in Chicago, in a city like Chicago, that uh, those outcomes are, are, are better for kids that traveled that journey, but not nearly as far better as I would have imagined when I started in this work the better part of 20 years ago. And so I just got curious about, right. well, boy, why is that, right? So I think that's the first. Second, I, th- I think, is 
so my family, I'm a, I'm a child of immigrants. Uh, my family um, immigrated to the United States in the in the 70s, 76 and 78, m- mother and father respectively, and by way of New York and Milwaukee, they ended up in Terre Haute, Indiana, uh, of all yeah. places. Yes. And um, I'm, a, I'm a proud beneficiary uh, of that community, uh, very much so. I... My my elders, as my mom's um, grandparents, my great grandparents were were intimately involved in the the, the civil rights struggle, the independence struggle mm-hmm. uh, in India, seeking sovereignty from Great Britain. Uh, ultimately, upon winning freedom in that struggle, um, came to believe that um, equal access to an excellent education and a sense of um, outward responsibility among every citizen was going to be very important. So it's individual freedom, uh, but also a sense of collective responsibility and community responsibility. Uh, this is what they believed. Um, my mother grew up in that context, went to school at the community center that my dada and, and uh, Kashiba, my great-grandfather and grandmother, founded. Mm-hmm. And um, I will say, if you let me brag on my mother for a little bit, if there is uh, a person that's living uh, mm-hmm. that is next to God, mm-hmm. um, it would be my mother. Mm-hmm. And um, she's a very special person. I think some of that's innate. Uh, I think a lot of that is a function of, of her nurture yes. and, and the context in which she grew up. So I think my family, my parents came here well-educated, but pretty hum, you know, humble beginnings. Dad had like $7 in his pocket mm-hmm. in one relationship and, mm-hmm. um, and was scrappy. And ultimately now uh, is living a life certainly of uh, well-being, mm-hmm. economic freedom, economic mm-hmm. prosperity. Mm-hmm. He lived that version of the American dream. And my brother and I are beneficiaries of that, and, and my children are beneficiaries of that. And these two stories, sort of that version, that's my, that family story, that family journey, um, and my experience in Chicago as a teacher and, and a nonprofit executive, and, and now having learned many of the same lessons six years later uh, here in Indianapolis and seeing many of the same leading indicators here in my home community right. uh, and in my neighborhood um, have, have were sort of initial motivators yes. um, to sort of ask some different types of questions and, and get curious yes. about what what might this take yeah. and what are we up to here, yeah. really? That's well, an extraordinary pair of stories, and I'd see how they're woven together in who you are and what you have become and why. We've been working with you as a, a part of our congregation at Second Presbyterian Church, and we're grateful to be joined in the effort that you're really, um, as part of a collaborative team, but really spearheading and leading. Um, and one of the ways that you have described that work to me and to the groups of folks that I've heard you interact with is um, the work of becoming a good community. Um, and I love every part of that. Um, the process, you know, that we are always in this process of becoming. Um, it's one of the ways I think about faith is that we can never say we've arrived at a destination so long as we're uh, still on earth, we're still becoming what we might mm. be. Um, I, I love the idea of um, describing us as a good community uh, because I think that encompasses more than just material welfare, more than just uh, sort of spiritual welfare, the, the, the ways in which the good comes together across uh, across various uh, ways of, of describing our life together. Um, and then I particularly love the word community. Um, so when you think about um, what makes for good community, community. What are some of the markers or characteristics of a good community? Oh, this is, this is uh, such an important question, Chris, and I, th- I think this is, um, this is the question. Mm-hmm. I think commonplace uh, in sort of social impact work, the, the contributing to progress um, of, of many kinds, there's oftentimes, and I've been certainly a, a perpetrator of this, um, an instinct to get into the work, get into action. Right. 
uh, do the thing, develop the program, develop the policy, uh, develop the practice, pursue the outcome, the output, right. the input, so on and so forth. And I think those are all very, very important. But I think there's there's a set of first order questions um, that we probably should ask mm-hmm. uh, before we get into the getting into. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that is the question you asked. Mm-hmm. What are, what are we up to here? What is a good community? Right? What's a good society? What's a good life? Right. And you asked me what I believe. I I'm uh, humble and and um, to the notion that there's a whole lot I don't know. Sure. Um, there's some things I've come to believe, uh, and there's some uh, thinkers that have contributed to that in, over, over the course of my life and, and, and in recent years. And so at the risk of <laughs> sounding like an old curmudgeon, I'll sort of quote <laughs> Aristotle. Uh, Aristotle had some thoughts on this. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, a philosopher that's sort of been um, many have come back to over time. And, right. and Aristotle spoke when reflecting on what's a good life or how should we live. He said that people need meaning. People need support to learn and grow. People need uh, eudaimonia. I, I believe I pronounced that mm-hmm. properly. I'm not sure, sure I did. Um, uh, which is this notion of flourishing, uh, a collective um, and a political concept that embraces uh, participation in the structures of, of society, the household, mm-hmm. the market, the marketplace, mm-hmm. the um, community and the state. And you know, I think that's I think that's pretty good. I, I, I I'll admit I stole that summary yeah. syn- synopsis from uh, a wonderful author, Hillary Cottom, mm-hmm. who wrote a, a wonderful book. You and I have both read uh, Chris called Radical Help: How We Remake the Relationships Between Us and Revolutionize the Welfare State. So that that's that's one set of thoughts I'd offer there. Uh, Amartya Sen, an economist and philosopher, uh, argued that to lead a, a life without shame you must be able to visit and entertain your friends mm-hmm. and you must be able to keep track of and participate in the things that others are doing and talking about. Mm. David Brooks, another mm. thinker, I know, Chris, that you and I and, and many of our friends look to, uh, in his book, The Second Mountain, explores four commitments that define a life of meaning and purpose um, to a spouse and family, to a vocation, to a philosophy or a faith, and to a community. And goes on to say that our personal fulfillment depends on how well we choose and execute these commitments in our lives. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious what else you would, you know, add or complicate right. here, Chris, and, you know, what wisdom you or the Christian faith tradition might offer. I have a couple further thoughts that I'd add maybe sort of um, that aren't, you know, plagiarism such as the last ones. Uh, and that is, um, I believe a good community is one where we, we all have what we need. We all have plenty. We feel full, and maybe moreover, we feel mutual regard mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, to each other. Mm-hmm. These aren't just inward needs, uh, though um, outward desires, I think, influence inward needs. Um, but we look outward. We think about our brother, uh, and we are our brother's keeper, yes. right? right? We think about our sisters, and we are our sister's keepers. Yes. And our no- the notion of brother isn't just familial. Right. genetic. Right. It's communal. Yeah. And in other words, we believe in a sort of a mutually assured destiny, right. uh, a righteous one, um, that we all have uh, responsibility for, for bringing mm-hmm. so. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if these ideas were in place roughly uh, in a place, political geography, a township, uh, or a political geography, a city, or a broader geography, a society, I you know, I think that 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 sounds about right. That's a that's a flourishing mm. place. Yeah, I've been 
working with a text from Exodus, and it's mm. familiar to, to many because it's used each year and often in both Jewish and Christian communities. Um, it's the manna in the wilderness, this idea, you know, the, the people of God traveling through the wilderness are hungry, are actually longing for their captivity in Egypt, where at least they knew where their next meal was coming from, and, and God hears their complaining and rains down this fine, flaky, bread-like substance mm. from heaven. And um, the sort of common interpretation is that that's, that's the miracle, that God rains down bread. Uh, but there's sort of a twist in the story. The people are told, commanded to only gather enough bread for one day um, and only gather what they need. And then the text says, when they gathered, the, those who had gathered too much had nothing left over, and those mm. who had gathered not enough had enough. Mm. And so, the other miracle is that when you gather too much, it spoils, and when you don't have enough, somehow abundance um, is provided. And so, I've been thinking about sort of the faith community mm. particularly um, and our unique role in standing yeah. in the gap between abundance and scarcity, uh, between those who have perhaps collected too much and those who have not enough. Uh, because I do think um, as much as the social ties and community networks matter, this idea of sufficiency, this mm -hmm. idea of having enough, this idea of sustainability um, is sort of a basic building block, yeah. right? That, that we have to have enough so that we can do the sorts of things that you're describing, mm -hmm. participate in our community, know our neighbors, so that our lives aren't so taxed to the to the breaking point at every you know turn uh, that mm -hmm. there is a little bit of margin for community welfare, so that there is a little bit of margin for our neighbors. Um, it's beautiful. I wonder, particularly in the work that you're doing in one political geography and one township, um, what are you experiencing as the impediments to the kind of good community that you've so eloquently laid out? I mean, I think uh, the the idea of um, uh, flourishing, the idea of friendship, the idea of belonging. Um, obviously, that's not the reality for far too many of us. And some of that cuts across socioeconomic yeah. lines even. So, what are, what are the impedi impediments, the barriers, the roadblocks to, uh, to building a good community that you're mm. experiencing? I think of these, this question sort of, you know, on, th on three planes. Mm -hmm. The first plane is sort of the, the war within our own work, our own individual work on ourselves. I think the second plane uh, is in our relations to each other. And I think the third plane is the systems, the structures, the cultures, the norms, mm -hmm. um, values, but maybe, maybe, maybe more so than values, norms mm -hmm. um, that we have uh, embraced as a community or a society. If you sort of analyze each of those in turn, mm -hmm. um, that is a framework to analyze all of us. I think one might arrive at some deeper thoughts on, or some some thoughts, anyways, uh, on on some of the impediments um, in our community. Mm -hmm. So, to the first, the inner work. I think, let's say the the affluent and the poor. I think. There's there's some inner work on these questions um, that you asked about earlier. You know what's 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 a good life? And if we really dig deep on that kind of question, um, I think we all would probably arrive at, at a notion that in some way, uh, those of us that are comfortable um, 
both are contributing to the inequality uh, and growing inequalities uh, that we see in our community and society and probably have an opportunity to reckon with is that actually what we believe should be uh, or believe is just, right? So, so that's sort of inner work um, for an example of, you know, the comfortable such as you and I, Chris, you know. Mm-hmm. I think if one is less affluent um, and, and perhaps in poverty or struggling, I think we need to be careful, Michael Mather and others um, uh, write eloquently about we need to be careful not to assume the lack of gifts mm-hmm. and the lack of talents, right. uh, the lack of agency. Yes. Um, but just, you know, numerically, uh, there, there are material uh, inequalities there, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I think there can also be a poverty of the spirit and, and of the mind, mm-hmm. um, of a belief in um, the ability to see and imagine uh, and pursue something um, and ha- have a deeper perhaps um, more fulfilling personal response to the question, what sort of life mm-hmm. do I want to live? Mm-hmm. You know, And so these, 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 I think, are important questions to ask ourselves internally because if we look outward for the answers to these questions, I think we're likely to be disappointed and um, mm-hmm. nothing will change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that there's a, there's a, boy, what a unbelievable... <laughs> Um, charge and, and hard charge and painful charge that might be, but but I also think I, I you know I th- I think there's a power. Yes. Uh, there's a sense of um, wonder and and ability and possibility in the ability to ask those questions, mm-hmm. seek answers to them, come out on the other side. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of at the at the self level, and I think uh, you know one kind of bumper sticker way to say what I was intending to say there is that change, mobility from poverty, uh, or pursuit of the good life happens when we build our own capabilities Mm -hmm. and our own sense of Mm -hmm. self-efficacy. I want to be careful not to suggest we are individual beings that operate in individual environments Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so on and so forth. But I think that's sort of one thought. Um, Second, in, in terms of our relation to each other, if the comfortable among us, you and I included, Chris, um, embrace the notion that there is something lacking in those that aren't as comfortable mm-hmm. or our role should we choose to get engaged here is uh, to make those that say are less comfortable than us like us. Um, I think similarly we are bound to be disappointed, mm-hmm. disenchanted, mm-hmm. perhaps cynical, mm-hmm. and perhaps subtly violent. Instead, if we ask the question, provided we've done our own self-work first, but we ask the question, what sort of life do my neighbors want to live for themselves, for their children, right. um, and be contributing members? Um, I, think, I think we're more likely uh, to build something uh, that, that gets us closer to the good community. Mm. And then in terms of our society, our impediments, I think, you know, I quickly get out of my depth here. A, a wise man said to me, you know, if, if we're able to drive past poverty— and not really even think about it, wonder or worry, uh, and just be comfortable mm-hmm. in that journey, it's going to be hard to get at the root issues mm-hmm. um, that we have. So I think, you know, part of that's sort of this sort of a relational thing. Part of that's us all as potential contributing members of flourishing communities and flourishing cities and flourishing societies contend with questions like, first off, is it true we have unbelievable inequalities you know, in in our society, uh, perhaps widening, seemingly so, without judgment, 
but with curiosity, why might that be? Mm-hmm. Um, and what are the implications of that? Is this the kind of society that God intends? Mm-hmm. Is this the kind of society that God in us intends? Mm-hmm. And what are the implications of our answers to those questions? Mm-hmm. I think, I think that there's all unbelievable and imaginative possibilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think these are kind of abstract ideas to the impediments, mm-hmm. um, but I think they are the, the fundamental questions at, at a sort of self and introspective at a group or interpersonal and, and at a community and or societal level that we sort of probably should contend with yes. uh, and contend with more and contend with more in the public square mm-hmm. and, and say the things we believe as scary as that might be mm-hmm. uh, or as ugly as that might sound, mm-hmm. but trust each other that uh, we're all, we're all becoming. Yeah. And so we all get a say and right. we all get to be heard mm-hmm. um, absent sort of that type of st- serious work at all levels, I think, um, we'll, we'll, we'll continue to have impediments. Mm-hmm. That is not to say that there is an evidence of um, a different kind of possibility. Right. I think we have abundant evidence in our community of Indianapolis, in our city of Indianapolis, in our mm-hmm. community of Washington Township that seems to demonstrate otherwise. Yes, I, I love the idea on all three levels of sort of beginning with a vision, right? Beginning with choosing to see. Um, choosing to see ourselves, choosing to see our neighbors, and choosing to see those structures and um, sort of, you know, broader um, uh, systems and the ways in which those impact as well. Um, I was thinking about, uh, you know, serving um, a faith community. I'm privileged to lead and serve a church. And um, I think about my parents grew up in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, um, Mm -hmm. among the Amish community. And, Mm -hmm. you know, for uh, many, many years, there was this debate about whether the Amish were actually Christian. You know, these boundaries of Christian identification are always shifting and moving and in-group and out-group. And um, the story is told that a tourist once asked an Amish farmer, are you Christian? And the farmer replied, you'll have to ask my neighbors. And I think whenever we whenever we think about the the work of faith in the broader community, mm. we have to ask our neighbors whether we are actually fulfilling, you know, our our goals, our intentions uh, to be a good community. Mm. And I wonder for you um, specifically. Can I ask a quick? Follow-up sure, of there? course. Yeah. Um, what is it? I, I want to for for my own posterity. Yeah. Um, the the story. I think it's a a peer uh, or or a a preacher you admire that that says mm. something one needs. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so I love repeating Jim Forbes, who yeah. for many years was pastor of Riverside Church in New York, um, likes to say that no one gets into heaven without a letter of reference from the poor. Um, and yeah. for me, it also it, it's a way of tying our spiritual reality because sometimes you know the church can be guilty of spiritualizing. Yeah what are material problems. And I just don't read that in scripture. Mm. I don't read in scripture this um, spiritualizing away the needs of our neighbors. Um, And yet there are uh, theologies and churches and uh, Christian movements that have sort of done that, have said um, either that, that Material poverty is um, a sign of sinfulness, um, or at least that God has withheld blessing in some way, this idea of sort of uh, blessings and curses theology that that the poor are the cursed. Mm. Uh, Jesus says exactly the opposite, um, blessed are the poor. Mm. Um, And so, how how we understand our spiritual well-being being somehow knit to the material well-being of our neighbors. Um, 
And so whatever you think about sort of the eternal consequences of our earthly decisions, um, the idea for me that our spiritual well-being is tied to the material well-being of our neighbors is a core Christian principle for, for anyone who, who uh, professes to believe in the incarnation that God became human um, – not to care about the human needs of those at greatest risk seems to me the ultimate betrayal of that of that sort of uh, core part of our theology that God became human. Um, so, yeah, I uh, so so for me, um, communities of faith have not just a, um, a, a a vital role to play in this work, but it's an it's an unavoidable role if if we're fulfilling the demands of our faith. And here I speak not just about you know, Christian faith, but, yeah. you know, the broader, I know a, a big part of the coalition that you are building um, is faith communities. Um, why do you think that is, and what do you think communities of faith uniquely have to offer to the work of becoming a good community? Oh, um, well, I will say, as a born and, and raised Hindu, yes, um, and someone confused about faith for much of my life mm-hmm. to this point, until perhaps more recent years, mm. probably the birth of my son, mm. Pax uh, was a catalytic moment. Yes, another catalytic moment has been the past, you know, eight ten months, mm. uh, Chris, and working with you, and with other leaders and um, lay folk of faith. Mm. It's been humbling and deeply heartwarming, mm. gratifying um, to be closer uh, to communities of faith and mm. institutions of faith. Mm. Second, uh, among them. Um, principally among them, the people, the people are incredible. The people are, are becoming, um, and are, are trying their darndest in the ways they know how, uh, to do God's work while here on earth. And, uh, boy, what a gift. Um, and so why is it that communities of faith have become such a part of this effort? I think, I think first is, Chris, what you said, I think if we take, you know, plain text or a reasonably plain text reading of, of many of our great faith traditions, I think we'd find that God compels us, as you said, to be on the side of the poor mm-hmm. and not in this battle mm-hmm. uh, for righteousness, but in, in, in the pursuit of what's good for all, right? And um, so I think that's part of kind of maybe the abstract mm-hmm. reason. I think it's also true that our effort is focused on Washington Township. Uh, Washington Township has um, among the largest, if not the largest, quality of life disparities along most measures most reasonable folks would look at in all of Indiana. And um, neighborhoods of um, concentrated affluence, beautiful neighbor neighborhoods, and with neighbors you and I both know who are incredible people, um, live blocks away from um, Crooked Creek, mm-hmm. a community of unbelievable gifts uh, and talents and, and righteousness and also a community of concentrated poverty by the federal mm-hmm. definition. Forty percent of, of, of adults and of residents in the neighborhood are living in poverty uh, blocks away from each other, mm-hmm. right? And so we have these enormous disparities blocks away, uh, blocks away from Second Presbyterian, blocks away from St. Luke's United Methodist mm-hmm. Church, blocks away from Witherspoon Presbyterian Church and uh, Universe United and Indianapolis Hebrew Congregation, et cetera. Uh, and what's also true is we have these unbelievable institutions, these incredible, not unbelievable, believable uh, and righteous uh, institutions, uh, namely institutions of faith, such as those I, I named, whose congregants, whose leaders, um, most principally you, uh, feel compelled 
uh, for yourself and for your congregants and for your institution to get engaged um, or get further engaged in the transformative uh, work of making a good and stronger community. Uh, and that has been my experience in meeting invariably leaders of faith and congregants of faith in these institutions. Um, the immediate response in, invariably uh, has been, here are the lessons we've learned mm-hmm. in, in the work um, seeking to support empower, um, come alongside neighbors in, in poverty, and and this time could be better. Mm-hmm. Uh, we might win at this this time. Right. Right. That's that's sort of the the receipt I've mm-hmm. gotten. Mm-hmm. And so you know, for all those reasons, um, I think it, it's it's been really quite astonishing that to an institution that's been engaged, uh, institution of faith, that is, uh, the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. And here's how. Let's to get to work. That. I love to, I, I love it. Anytime anyone's um, proximity uh, to a faith community has actually increased their respect for that institution, because I think that's not always the case. Yeah, that's certainly been my experience. Uh, I, I love that, um, and I also love the idea that uh, that you know one of the one of the things about being a person of faith um, is you know despair is ultimately atheistic right mm-hmm. that you know ultimately we can't be hopeless so long as we believe in god so long as we believe that there is a, a brighter future even if you know humankind doesn't have the capacity to bring that about in my yeah. lifetime or your lifetime one of the things I've so admired about um, how you approach the work that you do is you, you take um, – you are a teacher, but you take the posture of a learner um, in the way that you go about this work. And so, um, to, you, you made the really good point earlier that uh, you know, the impulse is create a program, create you – know, raise money, uh, put, a, put, an, put a new institution together. Um, and I think you have guided us so well – to take not just one step back, but a couple of steps back to say, we've got a lot to learn here. Um, And I know so much of this um, sort of first year or so of your work in Washington Township, this work in Washington Township has been uh, sort of a learning journey for you um, on behalf of the work. Um, And I wonder what you have learned specifically um, about our neighbors uh, as you've done that, because you are you're a phenomenal listener and you collect stories so beautifully. Um, what, what, if you were to name just just a couple of those lessons that you have learned in your listening journey through Washington Township, um, share some of those with us. I'll try to do several here. Yeah. Um, one is what is developed into a, a programmatic effort. I hope grows into a movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got to be humble to the notion that we're not even at the starting line yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but the but the real visionary and thought leader, I, I believe, and, and operator of this has been Patrice Duckett-Brown, yes. who's the executive director of Fabicar Glick Neighborhood Center. And Patrice has, has become uh, a dear friend, I, I believe, a, a, a lifelong friend of mine. I believe it will be a lifelong friend of yours, Chris. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. This is a woman that's... Um, uh, she's she's a good one, and uh, an incredible leader. One thing she that that's informed where we get started with what is now the Fast Program, which she named mm-hmm. Families Accelerating, Sustaining, and Thriving, um, and housed at Fabicard Glick Neighborhood Center, this incredible institution um, mm-hmm. uh, that's good and effective, is that so much of our 
uh, support governmental, um, NGO, nonprofit, faith, um, resources and supports go uh, towards um, a, a version of um, what, what I think many of us would come to the conclusion, the least among us, mm-hmm. right? Those that are in poverty or maybe right. even the most extreme forms of poverty, right? right? Rightfully so. When, mm-hmm. it, when, a, when a child is hungry, they need food. Right, right. Um, when a family doesn't have a roof over their head, they need a roof over their head. Mm-hmm. And um, Maslow, of course, teaches us, absent those basic needs being met, um, we have no shot um, um, at neighbors building capabilities mm-hmm. uh, to live the sorts of lives they'd want, right? Mm-hmm. Rightfully so. She said the, the effect of that, though, is that um, many families that are maybe just above the poverty level uh, but are living paycheck to paycheck, one you know, flat tire, uh, one car breakdown, um, one health accident um, or incident uh, away from a financial uh, cataclysmic series of sort of cascading negative events um, into poverty, um, oftentimes don't have the, the types of supports right. and the types of resources and the types of networks mm-hmm. um, that um, could, en- could enable them themselves right. um, to live the sorts of lives they'd want pursue economic mobility and, and, and uh, these other things. And she said, let's focus there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's where we're starting, mm-hmm. uh, the focus of the FAST program. And our hope is that if the 15 families, um, a substantial number among them see meaningful escape, sustained escape from poverty uh, for the rest of their lives, um, we will have potentially created a, a model that could be actionable more broadly. Again, right. we're not even at the starting line. We got to be humble. We got to be very careful about <laughs> yes, that. Yes. Uh, as you've heard yeah. me say a number of times. Yes. Um, two, we almost create a, a, a backdraft for for neighbors that are maybe a little further down the kind of the income spectrum. Mm-hmm. What might be something to get ready for, and then be a catalyst out of poverty, right? Mm-hmm. So, so her wisdom uh, through ten thousand hours in the work and social services and a life in a series of life experiences outside of work, work and vocation that have, that have contributed have been invaluable. I think um, I have a neighbor. Uh, his name's Cedric. Uh, Cedric uh, is uh, also a dear friend. He lives, you know, two, three doors down. Cedric grew grew up actually just blocks away from where Patrice grew up um, in the 30th and MLK, mm-hmm. Martin Luther King Boulevard, part of Indianapolis. And maybe one day he'll be he'll be on your podcast yeah. and tell his story. Yeah, so I won't that. I won't bear I'll, I'll I'm, I'm not going to sort of give that away. But <laughs> suffice it to say, he has lived many lives in this mm-hmm. life um, mm-hmm. uh, that that he occupies now in his sort of in his full mid forties, and he sees himself um, and and his wife Tina uh, sees herself in our fast family neighbors, and he has a great deal of wisdom about what it's going to take, mm-hmm. um, what it requires to be in genuine co-equal relationship. And um, he was among the first when asked, Cedric, would you be a volunteer, mm-hmm. um, a neighbor, mm-hmm. um, as part of this effort? The answer was an unequivocal yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to work together to identify many more, and mm-hmm. we're going to build this thing together, mm-hmm. which is the whole ethos of it all. Right. Right. This is not a hierarchical kind of model. It's sort of, um, we're trying to build a good community. We all get to contribute to being mm-hmm. co-creators of that good community. Yes. And his wisdom has been really deeply meaningful and, and it does, his fingerprints are all over the, mm-hmm. the effort. I think I could go on. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you if you yeah. want me to tell another story. 
your work of um, really surveying the neighborhood, not at a, um, I know you, you've done a lot of statistical and data-driven work, and yet it is those stories, I think. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, really this notion of starting in a, a small but significant way mm. um, and then seeking to expand, but also to think about things in terms of, you know, when, when, um, when I was struggling with uh, with some um, kind of outreach kinds of work several years ago, uh, a mentor said, you've got to understand that your success in this is not measured in days or weeks, but months and years. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I so respect about what Patrice has designed and, and you have put together is this is not um, a one-time assistance program. Um, again, as valuable as that is, and I always say at, at our congregation, um, as long as there are hungry people in Washington Township, Second Presbyterian Church will have a food pantry uh, and bags of groceries will go out the door every single time that pantry is open to feed those who literally are without what they need to eat that night. Um, In the same way, you know, there will always be the need for emergency shelters. There will always be the need for clothing drives. Um, And yet I I think as we listen to our neighbors, part of what we hear is, you know, no one one exists in that sort of crisis mode uh, by choice alone, and no one exists only because of individual decisions that have been made. And so um, what are the ways, uh, I think the question we are constantly asking ourselves is, uh, what are the ways that we break not only the the current situation um, and and lift folks up, but also you know that so, that whole cycle of poverty. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that you have taught me uh, in this work, and uh, you know, you're wonderful about sending uh, articles and essays and surveys and studies, and you keep my reading cue going, uh, which I deeply appreciate. Um, is all of the research that has been done around sort of social determinants, and particularly for me, what is one of the most hopeful lenses, mm. which is is um, that that one of the key markers of folks moving out of poverty is knowing someone who is not poor. Um, It seems like uh, almost a no-brainer once you hear it, uh, that if all you know are people who are similarly struggling in the same ways, that it's very difficult to imagine and then pursue um, a different future. And I really do believe, um, you know, I've sort of said at second, we can build a bridge between Williams Creek and Crooked Creek because I really do believe that um, needs and uh, abundance are flowing in both directions. Um, And so I so appreciate kind of that partnership work that you are doing and the long-term commitment to that work because I I totally have learned from you that – this is not something that can be solved simply in a matter of months or, or through the existence of a new program. It's yeah. these deep dive relationships. Yeah. Um, and I think it really comes from who you are, um, that you're, you know, that that's sort of how you're wired to think in terms of relationships and long-term commitments. Um, I also think it's, uh, as, I, as I sort of think about your background in history, it's also um, part of how education, how, you know, the work of education informs what you are doing now. Now because you know, the idea of educating children is not something that stops at a certain point in their life. Um, hopefully, we are learning throughout our lives, and we're given the tools early in life to learn for yeah. a lifetime. So, I so appreciate that long-term emphasis of your work. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of you to say. Oh, of course. I think you you, you mentioned um, it's 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 so intuitive, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, that you know relationships matter immensely. Yes. Right. I, I, you know, I believe part of 
maybe I'm not sure that I explicitly said this, but in response to your question about what constitutes a good community, I sort of posited that part of an, maybe an upstream question there is what constitutes a good life. Mm. Um, and many, many more good lives or uh, lived well uh, might make up for or be part of the creation right. uh, or the becoming of a good community. And, and part of good lives, I believe, is having rich, thick, deep, meaningful, mutually transformative um, relationships. Right. Right. And, and there now is empirical data. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, scholarly nerdy as a trained sort of bioengineer, I sort of love the research yeah. um, um, by economists and social scientists and uh, um, that are looking at reams of data, decades of, of American human data, governmental and otherwise, that actually validates the notion that the extent to which we, if we're sort of um, uh, lower middle class or, or in poverty, uh, have deep, not only relationships, but friendships. Right. Friendships with those who are more affluent, bar none, we are significantly more likely to be economically mobile right. or be mobile from poverty. And that's including school quality. That's including any number of other uh, I- interventions. That is not to say schools don't matter. No, no, no one will ever be able to tell me and convince <laughs> me of that, um, uh, of course. But that is to say that the data seems to indicate that uh, the relationships that are built perhaps in a school setting, perhaps mm-hmm. in a, mm-hmm. a faith setting, uh, perhaps in other, in other ways, perhaps in, through fast, uh, we might be able to you know, build, perhaps rebuild, a social fabric here, right. uh, and in particular, social fabric that that includes um, relationships across lines of difference. Right. And so, perhaps we're uh, we we end right back where we began, um, which is I know that Aristotle wrote that uh, friendship is the virtue by which all other virtues are made possible. Um, that we uh, that we grow into the virtues of um, well-being and the common good through our friendships, through our relationships. And Amr, I'm so grateful for our friendship. I'm so grateful for you being here. I'm so grateful for a thoughtful and engaging discussion. Um, and I'm so thankful for the work that you're doing, not just in our community, but beyond it as well, and for the friendship that, that we are building together. So thank you for being here. Pleased to have been with you, and, and Chris, the feeling I, I hope you know, I think you do, is is mutual, uh, perhaps then some. Um, uh, you are um, somebody I deeply admire, I look up to, um, I learn from in every conversation. Um, 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 I watch your sermons, uh, <laughs> and um, I learn a great deal uh, from them, and um, um, you're a very special person. Um, and you're a very dear person to me, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. And um, if you'll have me, I hope we'll be friends forever. You, you, uh, you can count on that, and I also hope we can continue this conversation as well. And thank you all for listening. So please subscribe, share with a friend, and let us know what you'd like to hear in future episodes. I look forward to continuing the conversation on the next Faithful Discourse with Chris Henry. Until then, take care of each other. <laughs>